couple of months. It's, it's about church history. And we have systematically walked through the seven, or the first six of seven, letters to seven churches in Asia Minor as found in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. And we are up to the sixth church, the church of Philadelphia. We covered it last week, and we saw that the church in Philadelphia, which covers roughly the time period from about 1500 A.D. to about 1900 A.D., is without question the greatest era in the church age that has ever been, or ever will be for the church age. And last week what we emphasized was the impact of that movement, that revival that took place on the European continent. That's what we looked at last time. But like I told you last week, the impact of Philadelphia was so great that we need to take a couple of weeks. We've taken one week for each of the other churches. We're going to take a couple of weeks. And so today we're going to continue to talk about the Philadelphian church, which, by the way, you ought to say amen. I mean, this is good news. The other churches had tough times. We, we learned of some very difficult circumstances and situations that our brethren had to live through throughout the centuries. But not in Philadelphia, although they had their challenges as well. In Philadelphia, what a great time of victory. Uh, if you wanted to compare it with an Old Testament book, you could compare it with the Old Testament book of Joshua, where they go into the land and they just conquer, and, and they were winning the victories. And this is the time of Philadelphia. So while the Reformation was going on in the European continent, there was also a similar one taking place in England. Yes, I know it's in Europe. And then ultimately works its way to the Americas. And so what I want to look at today, and the title that I've given the message today, is The Philadelphian Impact. And specifically looking at the English revival. And what we're going to see is, is that England, unlike the other continental European states, was more aggressive in their breaking free from Roman power and oppression. And so as a result, they were more effective in their reach throughout the entire world. And there's some questions that we're going to answer today as we walk through our Bible study. We're going to be able to answer the question, uh, why is English the universal language of commerce today? You ever wonder about that? Uh, why exactly is the United States of America a superpower? And why is the English Bible of Philadelphia superior to all other Bibles in all other languages? We're going to look at some of those things today. So we've been down this road before, if you've been with us, and if not, just sit back and enjoy today. But we're in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in verse number 7 and go to verse 13. Follow along. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." So we've gone through the general outline of the Philadelphian church age last week. If you missed that, you can catch that off our website. Today, we're just going to spend some time specifically focusing on how that played out from England westward to the Americas and the enormous world-changing impact that it had. We didn't have a choice where we were born. We didn't have a choice when we were born. But some of us need to be awful thankful, right? In fact, we should all be very thankful that we were born where we are, if not when we are, right? And that's some of the things we're going to learn today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as always, we come before your holy word, understanding 
that it is perfect and pure and preserved. And Lord, we desire to hear from you today, and so we pray that you would take your word and you would take these events of history that are documentable fact and that you will help us to connect the dots. You will help us to see your otherwise considered invisible hand working behind the scenes, using your people, preserving your word and taking it to the ends of the earth. Lord, what a glorious time. What an encouragement it is for all of us to know that there was a time when there was a great multitude of believers that actually believed everything you said and took it seriously. May we be people like that even today. Amidst the trouble and difficulty and resistance that's all around us, may we be Philadelphian. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, there's several things we need to look at, and before we actually get into the issues of uh, Great Britain and the work of God in those areas, we're going to see the impact starting with point number one in your outline, the Philadelphian impact on Rome, on Rome. And that's really verse 9, something we left off last week. It says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Now, I want to put this in context for you because we are coming out of the heels of the Sardis church age. And when we studied Sardis, we saw one of the big events was this idea of the Crusades. And the Crusades, much of which had to do with conquering Jerusalem, the idea that they wanted to take from the Islamic states the control of Jerusalem, right? The place where Jesus Christ will ultimately return and sit and rule this planet for a thousand years. And Rome decided they wanted charge of that. And so they attempted to take over Jerusalem with military force. They, they desired as spiritual Jews, as they would consider themselves, that they would inherit the Jewish physical land grant that was given to Abraham and his physical seed. This is a group of people in the Roman Catholic Church that have parishioners that at, for a time during this time of history, they, they were to come and to bow before the Pope and actually kiss his feet. So in the context of history, as the doctrine of Philadelphia is played out, the Roman Catholic Church is the synagogue of Satan. That's who he's referring to. They say that they are Jews, and they are not. They lie. So the way that that played out is what is referred to, and this is also in your notes, the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation. The Counter-Reformation. You could consider the events of history, and I do this frequently, like a chess match, where God moves, and God moves first. And we saw the works of Martin Luther and John Calvin and, and the different reformers in Europe from about 1517 to about 1550. But then Satan is going to have a counter move, like the black pieces on a chessboard. Uh, Satan is not the one who initiates. He only counters, right? And so he has a counter-reformation, and that's literally what it's called if you want to research it. And that was from about 1540 to about 1600. And what happens basically is you have the synagogue of Satan who kind of gets backed into a corner and decides, man, I got I to gotta fight back. This Reformation thing is really getting traction. I've got to fight back. And so there's three main ways in which the counter-Reformation took shape. And arguably the most important is the first one, and that's educationally. Educationally, with the development of a group called the Society of Jesus. The Society of Jesus was developed in 1540, where Satan, otherwise known in the Bible as the Angel of Light, right? He counters with an intellectual crusade against the heretics. Now, we know by now who the heretics are. If we were alive then, we would be considered the heretics, right? And so they, they counter with this intellectual crusade. Uh, the term that you might be more familiar with, the Society of Jesus, are the Jesuits. They're the Jesuits. And so the Jesuits were uh, initiated in 1540 by two main characters. You don't need to know their names, but you may have heard of them. Ignatius Loyola and Francis Xavier. There are universities named after them to this day, right? So what did they do educationally? Well, they worked underground to change the text of the Reformation Bible, sticking with Jerome's Latin Vulgate, 
Uh, they worked through avenues of education to change the mindset and to change the worldview of future generations. These were some of the world's most elite intellectuals, and they were infiltrating the world's major educational institutions. And can I just tell you that anybody who really understands, for example, controlling other people, they would be communists. And communists understand, and if you understand real communism, and, and to be fair, I never did until I lived in a country that was communist. But real communism does not control people the way I used to think, with fear and the, and the iron fist of the right hand. Real communism has its control through propaganda. It's through education. They just control all the media so the people of that place only get the info that they want you to get. And so all the people of such a land controlled in such a way, they actually think that they're doing the right thing. They actually think that their system is the best system. They actually believe and support what's going on. They're not just deceiving everybody for the camera. They're not just all you know, quivering in fear. They're controlled intellectually. They're controlled with propaganda. Uh, these Jesuits were absolutely ruthless. These were the people who, more than any other people possibly in the face of history, in the times of history, were, that, that used this principle of the ends justifying the means. They had their end in mind, and any means was fair game for the glory of the church. Uh, there are many, many American universities that are Jesuit universities. There's a lot of versions of Loyola. There's Xavier. We know about that one in Cincinnati, Gonzaga. Those of you that follow March Madness, a lot of these teams are good in basketball. <laughs> I don't know why. Creighton, St. Joseph's, Boston College, they're all Jesuit universities. They also have Jesuit high schools. There's a big event you need to know about. It's called the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was a big effort that came out of this counter-reformation of the Roman Catholic Church and the Society of Jesus. From 1545 to 1563, it lasted almost 20 years. This is the second most important council of the Catholic Church after the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., what they did was they reconfirmed certain Catholic doctrines. Salvation by works, sacraments, the Eucharist, purgatory, things of that like. Things that were being countered, things that were being um, rebelled against and reformed from people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and people we saw last time. Uh, they, they confirmed that the so-called final authority landed not in one location, but in four locations. Jerome's Latin Vulgate Bible, church tradition, church councils, and the Pope himself. How you can have four final authorities is beyond me, but that's what they said. Uh, the Pope is to be obeyed implicitly by all on earth without question. They pronounced over 100 curses against anybody who was a Bible believer. And you need to know, friends, that not one of those curses pronounced against Bible believers has ever been rescinded to the present day. Not one of them. Uh, they established an index of banned books, books that were forbidden to be read by the people. Of course, on the list of books that were banned, would have been all of the Bibles that would have come from the Antiochian line of Bible manuscripts. By the way, all Roman Catholic clergy and all Roman Catholic converts must swear allegiance, excuse me, or alliance, to the Holy Council of Trent. But, to be fair, there's probably less than 1% of practicing Catholics in America today that even know what that says. So your friends, your neighbors, nice people, friendly people that are a part of a Catholic church, they, they probably don't even know these things. And the information that we're giving to you in this series is not to attack people. I've said this before, I want to say it again. It is a system that is set up to counter the true biblical system. And good people are deceived by it. But the fact of the matter is, whether a Roman priest really gets it or not, in order to become one, he has to swear allegiance to the Council of Trent that 
officially declares all of these things which we could easily prove and have proven to be non-biblical nonsense. You probably should know that the current reigning pope, his name is Francis, the name that he took. They always take a name when they take office. He takes the name Pope Francis, like in Francis Xavier, is the first ever Jesuit pope in the history of all the popes. That's interesting. Well, the Jesuits also got involved in missions, and so we'll just call it the Jesuit counterfeit missions. And so on an intellectual basis, it was all about infiltration, mind control, education, and propaganda. But it didn't end just educationally, because the Jesuits, once they got involved in the peoples and the places around the world, they actually served as field militia for Rome. These were armed, militant soldiers. Uh, they actually coined the phrases, God's soldiers, or God's marines. Sometimes they were just referred to as the company. And they infiltrated foreign states. These guys were totally soulless and ruthless. They might make the mafia look like Girl Scouts. So really, that brings us to our second way that they tried to take control, and that is militarily, letter B. So this shows the next move of Satan in the Counter-Reformation and played out in what is known as the Thirty Years' War. That was in Germany from 1618 to 1648. This was a war that was ignited by the Catholic Church in order to reclaim Germany as a Catholic state, not a Protestant one. They also rolled over into other Protestant states, but it was primarily in Germany. The idea was also to try and stir up Europe and just to get the whole world kind of in turmoil, right? It began almost exactly 100 years, 100, 101 years after Martin Luther's 95 Thesis was nailed on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, which began the Reformation. And Germany's population dropped from about 16 million to about 6 or 7 million in 30 years. It is the longest and most destructive religious war in history. And commercially, letter C, also a, a, a manifestation of this counter-reformation uh, with something called the Edict of Restitution, 1629. Look it up if you're interested. We're not going to take a lot of time. The idea is, is that this was a movement of the wealth of the Roman system to restore and rebuild Catholic cathedrals all over Europe. Some of the most beautiful Catholic cathedrals, if you like that kind of thing, all over the continent were built during this time. In other words, build, give the appearance that we have health and we have prosperity in our movement. If you know anything about Islam and you know anything about the Muslim states, every country they go into, the first move that they do is they leverage all the wealth that they have from the Arab Middle East, and they build mosques on every, every countryside, every hillside, every village, every town has a mosque to give the impression we are a Muslim state because we have mosques everywhere. That's their strategy. That's what they do. And so that's what we see. Intellectually, educationally, militarily, and commercially. This was the counter-reformation. This was the counterpunch that Satan attempted to give to God's movement in Philadelphia. So that's what the devil was doing. But remember that it said in our text in Revelation chapter 3 that God opened a door that no man can shut. Amen? So let's roll into some of the good news. Number two, the Philadelphian impact in England. And so the second half of verse number nine says, Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Y'all, the Counter-Reformation fails to stop the Protestant Reformation movement in England. And, and in fact, this story is very interesting and proof, this should be an encouragement to us all, proof that God can and will use anyone of any type at any time when he so chooses. Never is this more, possibly never, is this more apparent than the life of the first person on your list, Henry VIII of England. Now, I don't know how many of you remember from history class Henry VIII, 
But this is the guy who's known to be a famous womanizer, right? The six wives of Henry VIII. And the thing that's prudent to our discussion is what I'm going to point out to you today. His first wife was a woman named Catherine of Aragon, okay? And Henry, over time, you know, he got tired of Catherine, and he wanted to have that wedding annulled. Well, at the time, Rome still had influence there, and he would have been married under that guise. And so he goes to the Pope, because he's the king of England after all, and he says, I want my marriage to Catherine annulled. I've got somebody else I like better. And the Pope says, sorry, not doing it. And so Henry, as a result, gets mad that he, the Pope won't let him get his marriage annulled, and he decides to pull further away from the Catholic Church. The separation of the Church of England from the Catholic Church initiates the English Reformation because of the carnality of a selfish, carnal king. God used him. The daughter of Henry and Catherine was a girl named Mary Tudor. Mary Tudor becomes Mary I, Queen of England, eventually. Sometimes referred to in history as Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary is the key driving force behind the Catholic Counter-Reformation in England. She's a devout Roman Catholic. She's known because she's burned over 300 Bible-believing pastors at the stake during her reign of only five years. So that's an average of 60 people per year, or five every month, more than one every week. She forced Parliament to restore Catholic law. She banned reforms under the penalty of death. A lot of the English clergy at that time fled for their lives, and they went to Geneva, Switzerland, if you'll recall last week, this utopia supposedly set up by John Calvin in Geneva, and they went there. Calvin is still alive in 1564. And, uh, and so ultimately, she, she is slaughtering people. Her first murder, her first victim, was a man named John Rogers, who was the translator of one of the seven English translations we'll get to in a moment in our study, the, the, the Matthews Bible of 1537. Uh, there was another man named Thomas Cranmer, who during the persecution signed a document recanting his faith in Jesus Christ. Later on, he came to his senses, and he officially recanted his recanting. He placed his right hand in a fire and said, This is the hand that denied my Lord. Well, Henry ultimately gets his second wife, and her name is Anne Bolin. Anne Bolin is the second wife of Henry VIII, and he marries her in a secret wedding service. He gets the Anglican Church to go ahead and declare Catherine's daughter Mary illegitimate, and his marriage to Anne is declared legitimate. And they have a daughter, and their daughter is named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is a successor to the throne of England, Queen Elizabeth I, 1533 to 1603. Called by the Brits at that time, Good Queen Bess, arguably one of the greatest monarchs in all of human history. In 1558, she ascends to the throne of England on the death of Bloody Mary, and she reigned for 45 years, a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, a Bible believer, opens England to the gospel, presides over a true, and here's the key word, complete reformation unlike the rest of Europe, who had a partial reformation and then kind of got sucked back in. In 1559, so she ascends to the throne in 58. In 59, she passes this law called the Act of Supremacy, her first year on the throne. The first thing that she does, the Act of Supremacy. What it does is it declares the monarch, the queen, as governor of the political state, and it leaves the church matters with the church. How many monarchs who have the control of all say, I will willingly set aside the church and leave the separation of church and state. I will leave the church to do the church's business and we will do the state's business. That's what good Queen Bess did. She sows the seeds of what we now value as the separation of church and state. 1563, Parliament passes 39 articles of faith 
That would be as fundamental as any Baptist church statement of faith you've probably ever read. A little bit later, 1588, there was an attack on England. Of course, the devil's not going to go away lying down, just let all this happen. And so King Philip at this time is the king of Spain. And at this time in history, the Spanish Armada is known as the most powerful naval force in the world. And so Rome has good control in Spain, and they, they lead King Philip, this is under the direction of Pope Pius V, to go to England and to attack and take her down. At this time, England has very little naval, naval strength. She doesn't have near the military power in her navy that Spain has. And so here come all of the fleet of the Spanish Armada up the English Channel, and they're going to surround and attack England. And, wouldn't you know it, on a bright, clear, sunny day, a big storm arose, out of nowhere, they say, and the greatest naval fleet in the world was sunk in the English Channel in 1588 without one shot fired. The hand of God. The hand of God. Because in Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 8, God kicks open the door so wide, no man could possibly shut it. So much so that he uses wicked King Henry to get it started. And ultimately through good Queen Elizabeth is setting the stage for England to carry the gospel to the entire world. This positions England as a new seafaring nation. Terms like Britannica rules the waves or the sun never sets on British soil, are a result of the greatness and the expanse of the British colonization. England becomes a ruling power under Elizabeth, and the key is this. The English-speaking people were faithful to the Word of God and the Great Commission. So, I put this in your notes. God protected England. Why? Because of her stand for God and the Bible. Spain, on the other hand, ever since that time, has never been a world power since. I want you to understand some things. English is the universal language to this day. English is the language. So, for example, I travel internationally a good bit. If there is an Italian jet uh, pilot, in a, in a 747 or whatever jet. And he's flying a jet that belongs to Alitalia, Italian airline. And he wants to land the jet from Alitalia in Rome, Italy. And the air traffic controller is Italian. That jet pilot and that air traffic controller are governed by international law to communicate with one another on the radio, get this, in English. Which, by the way, ticks off Italians. <laughs> They don't like that. <laughs> they are required. It is the universal language of commerce and trade. You, friends, with your blue passport, can travel to any country that will let you travel to, and that's almost all of them. We have few enemies that will keep you out. You can travel anywhere in the world, and you can land in that airport, and you will see all the signs on that airport wall will be in two languages, the language of the people and English. That's why Americans don't do well learn, learning foreign languages. We don't have to. English is everywhere. It's everywhere. So English is the, is the standard for language globally. Uh, English is also the standard for time and location. You know that little town of Greenwich, England? It's actually just a suburb of London. Greenwich Mean Time. Greenwich Mean Time is... The time. What time is it? It's the time it is in Greenwich. That's what time it is. And wherever you live in the world, you're either in Greenwich mean time plus a few hours or minus a few hours, right? We are in, in the eastern part of the United States, Greenwich mean time plus five. We're five hours after. You know what time it is because you know what time it is in England. That's how you know what time it is. Also, zero longitude. All right, kids, you know longitude, latitude, right? Longitude is long, latitude is flat. You're just going to get that right on the test now. Okay, <laughs> longitude, zero longitude. Where are you on the globe? Well, you know where you're at because it's your relation to England. 
England is the standard for language. England is the standard for time. England is the standard for location. Why? Because God blessed them. Why? Because they were faithful to God and his word. That's why. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, England's obedience to the Lord and his word caused God to escalate and elevate that nation to reach the entire world. Is God biased? English is just better? No, no more than Israel is better than other nations. God just chose to use them. He just chose to use them. And that's what he did. If you took the time and looked in Ezekiel chapter 22, you'd find that God calls and seeks for a man, as he says, to stand in the gap. Well, there's a great evangelist, and we won't even have time to talk about him today, Dwight Moody, great American evangelist in Chicago, made this statement. The world is yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. Dwight Moody went on to say, by the grace of God, I'll be that man. But you know what? Martin Luther and Queen Elizabeth, they got pretty close. They got pretty close. It's said of the apostles, Paul, and the people that traveled with Paul in Acts chapter 17 and verse number 6 that, hey, these men have turned the world upside down. They had that testimony. You know, that's what English Christianity had. They were literally turning the world upside down for the gospel of Jesus Christ. How exactly did they do that? Well, that's our next point. Number three, the Philadelphian impact on Scripture. The Philadelphian impact, I want you to get that, on Scripture. Verses 10 and 11, back in Revelation chapter 3. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. So God uses the Philadelphian zeal in England to establish his perfect Bible. you got to get that. The Philadelphian zeal, determination, enthusiasm, belief, fortitude, any of those things, all of those things, God took that and leveraged it to once and for all produce the Bible that will go all over the planet. This literally is the key of David, spoken of in verse number 7. There's some people you need to know about. You need to know about Desiderius Erasmus. Now, the thing you probably need to know about Erasmus is, is that he was a Roman Catholic. He was a Roman Catholic language scholar. He was a brilliant man. And as you'll see through some of the things of his life, he probably wasn't considered the greatest Catholic ever, if you ask the church themselves. But in 1505, he translated the Antioch manuscripts into Latin. Know that the Catholic Church only used the Alexandrian manuscripts of Jerome. He translated the Antioch manuscripts of the heretics, right? Uh, in 1510, he wrote a book called In Praise of Folly. In Praise of Folly is a scathing rebuke against the abuses of the Catholic clergy. They probably weren't too thrilled about that. Uh, he never did really break from the Catholic Church, though, and he sought to reform the church from within, not unlike Martin Luther. In fact, he was a friend of Martin Luther, and it's Martin Luther that takes Erasmus's text to ultimately translate the Luther-German Bible from the Antiochian text. He was a brilliant language scholar. He taught at Cambridge University when a man named William Tyndale was his student. You need to know about William Tyndale. We'll talk about him in a second, but know this. The greatest contribution of Desiderius Erasmus is that from 1516 to 1535, he produced five Greek texts of the New Testament from the Antioch manuscripts. And the fifth one, the fifth edition, the final edition, is the basis for what we call the Textus Receptus, the received text which is the underlining manuscript that translates into the King James Bible. William Tyndale, 1484 to 1536, he ends up going on to be with the Lord the same year that Erasmus goes on to be with the Lord. He's a brilliant, learned, educated scholar. I mean, everybody else's work 
in Bible translation is going to be based on the work that Tyndale does. Tyndale arguably can't be compared with anybody else. Tyndale was fluent, completely fluent, in seven languages. Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish, English, Hebrew, and French. And they say so much so that each one sounded like his native tongue. Um, In case you were wondering, that's really hard. He was moved to translate the Bible for the common man, the purest of motivations. He was run out of England under severe persecution, and he ended up fleeing to Hamburg, Germany, uh, where he met some resistance. He ends up moving to another place called Worms, and there he finished 3,000 copies of the New Testament. He smuggles them back into England at great peril, and many of those copies are seized and burned. In 1535, ultimately, he's betrayed, he's arrested, he's jailed. While in jail, wins the jailer to Christ. (laughs) Not unlike Paul and Silas, right? Acts 16. And before his ultimate execution by being burned at the stake, many of you may have heard his last words are his final prayer as he's being tied and they're lighting the fire under him. Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. At that time of his execution, the king was King Henry. The king was King Henry. But you know what? His prayer was answered. Uh, The very first Bible published on English soil was Tyndale's New Testament. And ultimately, the King James Bible was published under a king of England about a generation later. That king is King James I. King James I of England, 1566-1625. He was crowned King James VI of Scotland when his mother abdicated the throne in Scotland in 1567. In 1603, he's crowned King James I of England upon the death of Queen Elizabeth. In 1604, in January, immediately after taking the throne, James I is petitioned by a group of Puritan believers for permission for a new translation of the Bible. And James agreed and ordered that a new, or in other words, final, translation of the English Bible be undertaken. This will be the final step in the English Reformation, the publication of one Bible that will go all around the world. You have in your notes the list of the translations, but before we get to those, Let me just run you through. I want you just to listen. This isn't in your notes, and it's a lot of technical info. But I decided to read it to you just for for information's sake. You can research this on your own. But I want you to understand the basic operational principles that the translators of the King James Bible used as they were translating their work. By the way, you can compare the operational principles of many new versions, and you won't find this dedication to accuracy, I promise you. Well, the Bishop's Bible, that was the one that was just before. That was the the last one in existence prior to the King James. That was to be used as the basis and the starting point of this new translation. Uh, The spelling of the proper names was to remain unchanged. The division of chapters and verses was to remain intact. When a word could have multiple meanings, the preferred translation is the one with the most number of ancient authorities. The most number of ancient manuscript evidence. Therefore, we get to the point where we are today, and maybe you hear people use terms like the majority text. The majority text means that we are using the text, that's referred to the New Testament texts that give us our King James and King James only, English Bible. The majority of manuscripts available created this Greek text. Okay, sometimes called Textus Receptus, received text as it was received by the churches. So that was a a principle of operation. Uh, Marginal notes were prohibited. They said the text of the Bible itself must be intelligible on its own. You can't make it so highly technical that you can't understand it without notes. But margin references to parallel passages, a lot of you have center column references, they said that's fine. 
Uh, work was conducted by six major groups at three universities. Each man first worked independently on some assigned text, and there was a total of 54 men that worked on this committee. All independent work was first checked and approved by all the others within his group, and then the copy was sent to the other five groups for their review and input. All things that were objectionable, any objection or question, was noted and tabled until the final edit. Every word was closely examined, cross-checked, and agreed a minimum of 14 times. All obscure, this is great, I love this one, all obscure or difficult passages, we got a few of those, right? Were sent out in a general letter to every bishop, pastor, and learned man in England for judgment and input. These guys did not, these were not just scholarly people that sat in an ivory tower and decided what we should have. They consulted with ministers who used the Bible every day in shepherding people and teaching the Word of God. And they got the input from people who were using it, y'all. How many of you have been to college? Raise your hand. How many of you have been to college and sat under professors who never one day in their life exercised what they were teaching? Yeah, me too. That is most universities, by the way. Occasionally you get somebody who actually worked in the field. Those are usually the best teachers, are they not? They understood that. Five other translations were used to provide varied readings. In other words, the first five before the bishops, right? And then the King James is ultimately the final edit in 1611. So you have the seven English translations of the Reformation, Tyndale, Coverdale, Matthew, Coverdale's Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, and then the King James Bible. By the way, uh, next October, next year, when we have our annual Certainty Conference, uh, this will be the subject of next year's Certainty Conference, so you can kind of get ready for that. Uh, but literally, the King James Version of the English Bible was the capstone of all the previous six. It's number seven. I'm just completing the class on how to study the Bible. The students there know full well. Number seven is the number of completion. And that's what we have. Understand this. No proclamation or law was ever passed by the English Parliament approving the KJV. There's no government control whatsoever. Queen Elizabeth made sure of that. Notice this, no copyright was ever issued for the text of the King James Bible. No man profits monetarily from it. You can photocopy your King James Bible and give it to as many people as you want, and you're not violating any copyright infringement. You can't do that with any other Bible. Within 40 years of 1611, the printing of all the other versions in English, they just ceased naturally. Everybody understood that this was the authorized version. In fact, it was called the authorized version because it was just universally accepted by all English-speaking people. And the King James Bible ends up defining and standardizing the English language. And you know it still does to this day. So now when we read the verse of Scripture or the verses of Scripture in Psalm 12, six and seven it kind of takes on a whole new meaning doesn't it the words of the lord the very individual words each one checked at least 14 times are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth plenty of persecution plenty of bloodshed purified how many times Seven times. You think that's a coinky dink, do you? <laughs> Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. English lesson, them. What does it refer to? The words of the Lord. Uh, if you don't have a King James Bible, it won't refer to them, the words of the Lord. It will, Thou shalt keep him, probably, O Lord. Right? That's probably what your Bible says. Interesting that other versions don't preserve that verse that tells you that God preserved his word. 
Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them, the words, from this generation forever. Friends, do all the manuscript evidence your little heart desires. There's plenty out there. Do all the arguing and thinking about it all you want, but you can't change the facts of history. Only Philadelphia is said in the Bible to have kept His word. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Let's cross-reference. Let's be good Bible students. Where is the word kept? Where is the word preserved is kept in Philadelphia, not Laodicea. Only the KJV English Bible was purified seven times. Only the English Bible is the only Bible in use in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. It's the only Bible anybody had under their arm when William Carey and Adoniram Judson and all these people went all over the world during the golden age of missions, the open door that nobody can shut. More world-changing spiritual fruit has come from the ministry of this Bible than all the other Bibles put together. You can't deny that. Unless you just are a liar. Unless you just want to ignore the facts. Don't confuse me with the facts. I've made up my mind. Its official title is the Authorized King James Holy Bible. The authorized, because it carries authority. Have you ever noticed that all English-speaking, I mean all English-speaking politicians, quote from a King James Bible? Have you ever noticed that? That's odd, isn't it? King James. Nine letters. Holy Bible. Nine letters. Hey, Bible students, what's nine the number of in the Bible? Fruit-bearing. No more fruit than you can get out of this Bible. It's the King James authorized version. James. You know, James is a Jewish name. That would be the way the English-speaking people would say the name Jacob. The book of James in your Bible, the Apostle James, that's ja- his name, his Hebrew name is Jacob. Isn't it interesting that it wasn't, you know, King William or King Henry or King Charles? It's King James that authorizes the work to be done. And he is a king. Because in Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 4 it says, where the word of a king is, there's power. Oh, I get it. There's historical applications. Yes, yes, I understand. But where the word of a king is, there is authority and there is power. So Peter says in 1 Peter 2.17 that we're to fear God and we're to honor the king. We're to honor the king. Yes, it has governmental implications. Yes. But boy, isn't it funny how those words just kind of show up. Let me just tell you something. You could argue that the entire story of church history is little more than God's work in getting us this book right here. Because when it comes to God giving us his perfect Word in the universal language of the end of time. This Bible, friends, God thought it. Jesus Christ bought it. The Holy Spirit brought it. And Satan fought it to the tune of 80 million people slaughtered. So God thought it and Jesus bought it and the Holy Spirit brought it and Satan fought it. But you know what? Praise God, y'all. I got it. (laughs) I got it. And so do you. Because that's the Philadelphian impact on screen. You're not going to, is God doing that in Smyrna? No. Is he doing it in Sardis? No. Is he doing it in Laodicea? Come on. In Philadelphia, the church that kept my word. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. Don't be conned by Madison Avenue marketing strategies. Listen, man, God is trying to tell you something. All right, we've got to move on. Number four, the Philadelphian impact in America. And man, this is good. 
So if you missed, by chance, the opportunity to be with us last Tuesday for our annual Thanksgiving service, you missed it. We had a wonderful time, and we had wonderful testimonies. It was a great time of worship. And I don't have time to recover the material I gave, but on Tuesday I spent a little bit of time explaining how this Philadelphian time was the time. It is the time of Philadelphia when the United States of America becomes the United States of America. The American continent was explored by some of the great explorers of the early days. So Christopher Columbus sets out from Spain, right, under the mandate of the king and the Roman church to get the new land to ultimately propagate new crusades of conquering. And Columbus, is head, he's intending to come to North America. The wind blows him south and he lands in the West Indies. And the people that ultimately colonize America are pilgrims. They're Bible believers. In 1620, these are people who are escaping religious persecution and they're coming to worship the Lord freely and propagate His ministry. In 1620, nine years after the establishment of the perfect English Bible. So the United States began with the establishment of churches and evangelists and evangelistic crusades. Man, them were the days, huh? There's some names I put in your list, and I can't even do justice to the names I put in your list. I put them in your list so you can go home and read about them, search them, learn some things. Roger Williams, John Clark, 1638-1639, founded the first two Baptist churches in America, both in Rhode Island. America experienced two famous, great awakenings, revivals. The first great awakening, 1720 to 1750. And there are some people that you need to know about. Gilbert Tennant, called one of the early spark plugs of the great awakening, trained for the ministry by his father and trained several others personally. He began a college called Log College, north of Philadelphia, that college today is actually, that was the ancestor to Princeton University. Um, By the way, all the Ivy League schools, I don't know if you know this or not, all the Ivy League schools, Yale and Harvard and Princeton and Dartmouth and Columbia and all those schools that are in the Ivy League, they all began as Bible-preaching seminaries training people for ministry. Uh, Good luck finding Bible believers there now. I mean, there are some, but it's not the way the school's positioned, right? George Whitfield, perhaps the greatest pure orator the world has ever seen. Preached to over 30,000 people in Boston Commons, an outdoor park, at one time. Saw over 10,000 conversions in one meeting alone. He conducted seven, seven separate campaigns throughout the New England colonies, a population of about 300,000 people and So through his efforts and then the efforts of those after him, about 40,000 people uh, are converted to Jesus Christ. That's over 10%, and 150 churches are started. As a result of these revivals, we get Columbia University in New York, dedicated to training pastors. Uh, Ben Franklin heard him preach in Boston Common and said, you can hear his voice a mile away. Man, if I don't have this little microphone thing, you know, past the fifth row, y'all ain't hearing me. The revivals sang the hymns of a man named Charles Wesley. And it was said that you could hear when the crowd sang Wesley's hymns, you could hear them two miles away. When he came to Boston, the local authorities met him and they said, I'm sorry to see you here, Mr. Whitfield. And Whitfield replied, so is the devil. His final words, recorded, Lord Jesus, notice this, I'm weary in thy work, but not of thy work. If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and speak for thee once more in the fields, seal the truth, and afterward come home to die. We learn about John Wesley. John Wesley was actually converted to Jesus Christ through the influence of a Moravian missionary while he was traveling back to England from the Americas and while he was on the boat. 
He is the founder of the Methodist denomination, which numbered about 77,000 people at his death. John Wesley traveled 250,000 miles on horseback to preach the gospel. People would tremble and shake under the conviction during his messages. He preached over 20,000 sermons and wrote over 50 books, and his brother Charles wrote about 6,000 hymns. Starting to feel a little insignificant? <laughs> they burned him in effigy at Cork in Ireland. I mean, there's a guy you want to get mad at, right? There, there's a guy that you want to you hate. David Brainerd. David Brainerd is a guy a lot of people don't know a lot about because he died at age 29, and he didn't have the opportunity to really serve much. He didn't have a lot of spiritual fruit in his, his personal ministry. But David Brainerd had the influence through his writings, and he kept extensive journals of prayer that motivated people like William Carey and hundreds of other missionaries after him. Don't ever view somebody else's ministry as a failure just because they might not have the number of people following them that you might think. Remember the deacon Stephen in the first church? And in Acts chapter 7, he preaches to the unrepentant Jews of that time. And what do they They killed him. But who was standing there holding the jackets of everybody while they stoned him to death? Saul of Tarsus. You telling me Stephen doesn't have impact and glory and rewards forever? You're going to call his ministry a failure because he went out on one preaching crusade and he got killed and he was dead and that was it? Listen, man, God's keeping track a little different. Jonathan Edwards. He's the son of a pastor, graduated from Yale in 1720 at the age of 17. Oh yeah, but man's evolving. <laughs> Dismissed from his church for insisting that all members must be born again. Kick that guy out. He's a revival preacher. He preached this famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You can read it. When he did, he read it, and they say, in monotone. But people would grip the edge of the pews and chairs around them, afraid that at any moment the earth would open up and swallow them whole straight into hell. You see, the first great awakening started out targeting, in many cases, people who were already churched. But you know what happened? A lot of people got saved. You know why? Because not unlike today, there's a lot of lost people in church. There's a lot of lost people in church. I want you to note the dates, 1720 to 1750, because our country ultimately is now prepared for the American Revolution and independence from England on July 4th, 1776. That was just a byproduct of the movement of God and revival. Then we have the Second Great Awakening, 1790 to 1850, large evangelistic camp meetings targeting the unsaved, the unchurched, Timothy Dwight, president of Yale University. By 1780, Yale was in deep apostasy. It didn't, didn't take that long. In 1802, Timothy Dwight began preaching in earnest the need for individual conversion at Yale. Imagine, the president of the university <laughs> preaching the need for individual conversion at the school that was set up to train Christian ministers and has fallen backward and approximately one-third of the student body gets saved. <laughs> this spreads to Dartmouth University and from there south into Kentucky and Tennessee in a three-year period. 10,000 people joined Baptist churches in Kentucky, and in 1790, the first Sunday school and midweek prayer meetings are established in Philadelphia. There was something called the Haystack Prayer Meeting where five people met to pray at Williams College in Massachusetts. And they called it the haystack prayer meeting because when it would start raining, they just kind of ducked under a haystack to stay out of the rain. Out of that spawned missions breakout, and first five missionaries were sent out of America, including Adoniram Judson and Luther Rice. The American Board of Foreign Missions, the birthplace of American missions, came out of the haystack prayer meeting. Charles G. Finney, Pastor and revival preacher centered in New York, Delaware, Pennsylvania resulted in about 500 conversions. 500,000. I'm sorry. Leave off the thousand. Makes a big difference. Over 100,000 members are added to the Northern Presbyterian churches. And approximately, they say, 85% of his converts remained in the churches 
and remain faithful to their profession. Y'all, we, haven't even, we don't even have the time to talk about Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> yes, he was in London, the prince of all preachers. We don't have time to talk about George Mueller, who ran an orphanage in Bristol, England, who raised millions of dollars to care for children without one time ever asking for money for anybody. He prayed it in. And D.L. Moody that I mentioned earlier, the great revivalist in Chicago, thousands, hundreds of thousands saved at the preaching of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody's walking, the story goes, he's walking down the streets of Chicago and a drunk stumbles up to him. He says, hey, aren't you D.L. Moody? And he says, yes. And he says, I'm one of your converts. To which Moody looks at him and he says, well, sir, you certainly may be one of mine, but you certainly are not one of the Lord's. <laughs> so that's something to think about. Listen, y'all, let's wrap this up. This is the last thing in your notes. The main things that made Philadelphia great were the preserved Bible, expositional preaching, and world missions. Preserved Bible, expositional preaching, and world missions. Remember, we can't help that we were born in Laodicea. But you know what? We can establish a church in our little town that focuses on and honors a preserved Bible, expositional preaching, and world missions. We can do that. I mean, if you were given the freedom to lead a church anywhere at any time, wouldn't you want to lead a church that way? Wouldn't you want to be a part of that? Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. You know that most people teach that that hour of temptation is the tribulation, and that this is the proof text that the church does not go through the tribulation. I don't believe that. I do believe the church does not go through the tribulation, but not because of Revelation 3.10. I believe that the hour of temptation in the context of the doctrinal layout of church history, the hour of temptation, and we'll talk about this next week, is not the tribulation. It's Laodicea. It's Laodicea. And the time in which we live today, y'all, is a time of unbelievable temptations. If I was just guessing, and that's all I can do is guess, I would say that throughout the course of this one-hour sermon that I've just delivered, at least, I mean, this is a, this is a generous estimate, at least 10% of you have looked at your phone. The hour of temptation is all around us. You can't fight it. You've got billboards. You've got flat. Man, everything is trying to draw you to other things. That's Laodicea. Philadelphia loved the book. And we're spared the temptation. We're stuck. We're born in Laodicea, but we can still love the book. We sure can. That's why he says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast. Hold it fast. You got a good hold on it? Don't let go of it, right? Let's do some comparing. 2 Timothy 1.13 Hold fast the form of sound words. You know where you find the form of sound words? You find it in this old Bible right here. You find it in a 400-year-old Bible. It says in Titus 1.9, Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. So you know what you need to hold fast? You need to hold fast the right Bible. You know what else you need to hold fast? You need to hold fast discipleship and training and ministry that you can exhort and convince people who oppose you. And then Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, without going backwards, without quitting, without cashing in your Bible, without cashing in your doctrine, without cashing in your discipleship and your ministry just to feel better. Or as is in the case with far too many Christian ministers hired by churches today, cash it in to get a job. Because that happens over and over and over again. Hold that fast which thou hast. What's the application? How are we going to wrap this up? Well, we're going to pray. But God wants to know. You're going to hold it fast? 
You're going to stand on the things that made Philadelphia great? Because anybody can. We weren't born in that time. That means it's harder. You can do it. God doesn't put anything more on you than you can handle. That's a promise. And you can decide. And you know what? I've been doing this long enough to know. I don't need to know you personally. I've been doing this long enough to know. There's people out here that deep in your soul, you know, you've let that thing go. You've wavered. You've walked around in circles chasing your tail. You've been distracted by the temptations of the hour of temptation. Whatever your situation is, it is what it is. But God's rattled your cage just a little bit today. And he wants you to get serious. He wants to know. Because you know what, y'all? We don't exactly know. But boy, aren't we close to the end? Aren't we close to the end? Don't you want to get it right before it's too late? Don't you? I know a lot of you got it right. Man, you praise God, we got it. Well, man, let's pray for everybody else. Let's pray together.